Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. I've just come back from this pie shop in London, and the woman, as I was ordering, said, Ah, sir, times is hard. Times is hard. And okay, maybe I wasn't really in London, and maybe the woman in question was Patti LuPone on the Broadway cast recording of Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, but that's neither here nor there, because the sentiment has been an overriding one for myself for probably all of you listening for the last two years, longer, times are hard. It's a strange thing to wake up and look around and realize that you are living through history, and not necessarily the good kind. Rising fascism, global pandemic, climate collapse, there's a lot of scary shit out there, and that, by and large, is one of the main reasons that I certainly turn to books. I look to them for comfort, I look to them for guidance, but there's a particular kind of guidance and comfort that I've been thinking about, and so that's where I thought I'd take us this week. On the one hand, we've got a book that is mainly, but not entirely, for creatives and creators, a handbook for how to deal with times being hard and how to keep your artistic compass true. And the other book is as refreshing as a perfectly blended, perfectly brewed cup of tea after a really long day. Maybe a sympathetic ear while you sip on it. So first, let's head to the writing desk. Charlie Jane Anders is a titan. I don't know how else to say it. She is absolutely astonishing, one of my all-time favorite science fiction and fantasy writers. Her novel, All the Birds in the Sky, is one of my all-time favorite books, and I voraciously read just about every word that she's written, from short stories to essays when she was working at io9 to her novels, including her latest, Victories Greater Than Death, the first in a YA space fantasy trilogy. She's got a short story collection coming out later this year called Even Greater Mistakes. But the book that I primarily wanted to talk to her about today is her first essay collection, Never Say You Can't Survive. It's a moving book and a powerful one, It's a handbook for writers or creators, really, of any stripe. I think anybody could get something out of this because the idea is that you can create a fantastical world in your head that is essentially an escape from the real world, but also a place for you to process these things. It quickly joined some of my favorite writing handbooks, the books that I go to all the time, the books sitting on my desk that I'm staring at right now. I wondered what it was like to decide to publish an essay collection now, and to publish one that has such a timely meaning. You know, I used to do writing advice for io9, this website I used to work for. And, you know, basically for eight years and a bit, I was writing like pretty regular like advice posts. And uh, when I left io9 in 2016, I was like, okay, I should try to just do a book of like that writing advice. And I sort of had a conversation with whoever was owning io9 at that point about possibly being able to use some of the stuff I'd written for io9 in a book and also write some new material. And I was going to sort of turn it into like just a how-to for like how to write science fiction. And, you know, and it ended up just nobody, we didn't get any really good offers to publish that, you know, because I, what I looked, what I realized when I looked was that there had been a lot of books about like how to write science fiction and fantasy. And this was going to be a fairly nuts and bolts book. It was going to be a lot of like, you know, how to just for beginners in a lot of ways. And people felt like the market was kind of saturated. So I kind of put that aside. And meanwhile, sometime in 2017, I started giving a talk at like writing conferences and 
you know, other kinds of events uh, called Never Say You Can't Survive. And it's basically that some version of that talk became like the first chapter of this book. At some point, you know, in 2019, I was thinking again about like, oh, I should try again to figure out how to do a book of writing advice because people on Twitter and elsewhere were always saying to me, like, when are you going to do a book of writing advice? Because they had read my writing advice on io9. And, you know, I, I felt like what my 2016 pitch had lacked was like something to kind of make it stand out from like the crowd of writing advice books. I sort of batted around some ideas, but I kept coming back to that talk I'd been giving, Never Say You Can't Survive, and thinking, you know, that I could turn that into a book because I have a lot. It turns out I have a lot to say about that. And there's a lot of stuff about writing that comes back to that. And you can get to some kind of nuts and bolts things in the context of talking about that, but still kind of keep it, you know, in that same kind of topic area. And, you know, I was having all these conversations with friends and fellow writers and just everybody who were, A, you know, having a hard time writing in the midst of some really scary stuff that was going on. And B, you know, finding that they weren't necessarily writing the thing they thought they were supposed to be writing, like they were writing something that just like they were enjoying writing or that was making them feel better. And that, you know, when they were able to write, when they found what they could write or wanted to write, it was making them feel better. It was providing a refuge. It was a thing that was like actually really helpful and kind of, I don't know, therapeutic for people who were struggling in the midst of hard times. And so, you know, I, um, so I, I, I basically Early in 2020, I think my agent and I pitched the folks at Tor.com and I was like, look, why don't we just post these essays on Tor.com? And if you end up feeling good about them by the end, we should do them as a book. And they were like, okay, great. And so that's what we did. And I was just posting them in real time during 2020. And what I found was that, you know, I sort of knew going in, I kind of had this feeling that 2020 was going to be a rough year for a lot of people because, <laughs> you know, by the start of 2020, we already knew COVID was coming. The election was coming up. There was a lot of other stuff that was obviously going to be tough, but I wasn't really prepared for how, you know, agonizing in a lot of ways 2020 was really going to be. And so, you know, I found that I set out to kind of be helpful and reassuring and, and encouraging to other people who are struggling with writing, but I ended up kind of reassuring myself as much as anybody else. Like I was I was kind of talking to myself as much as anybody else about like, you can do this. It's okay. You know, whatever you're able to write now, right now is something you should be writing. And, you know, you can find ways to make this actually not like a pressure or an obligation, but something that makes you feel happy. As I was reading this book, I was really wondering what it was like to write and and what it was like to be writing it as somebody giving advice in the midst of an absolute trash fire of a present, were you also drawing on your own advice? Like what, what was your, I don't know, your relationship to yourself, like yourself versus your writer self? I, my brain starts to break a little bit as I try to formulate this question. How did it feel, I guess? I mean, I was, I was having a really rough time, uh, especially the spring and summer of 2020, because, you know, my first response to the kind of COVID crisis was to get in touch with a bunch of my friends who had organized stuff in the past and say, we need to organize fundraisers to help local bookstores in the Bay Area. And so we ended up organizing like, I want to say 26, 25 fundraisers for local bookstores in the course of like two or three months. It was a lot of work. It was a ton of work. And meanwhile, my personal life was kind of having like a, ver a variety of horrible things happening that are now pretty much all resolved one way or the other. But uh, it was a really challenging time. And so I wasn't really able to do much creative writing myself, but I was writing these essays. It was, it was good to have an outlet. It was good to have a thing that every week I have to write an essay. But, you know, it was really about kind of, like I said, reassuring myself and also finding like one of my huge challenges is that COVID kind of turned my writing routine upside down. Like I used to have a routine that involved walking to cafes and sitting in cafes and writing, and that was no longer possible. And so that was another thing that made it really hard for me to write for a while. So one thing I did with Never Say You Can't Survive was a lot of the first drafts of the essays I wrote by talking into my phone as I was out on a walk and just using like speech to text. Like I actually would just open Gmail and like draft an email to myself and just like kind of free associate for like an hour into my phone. And that none of that would really be published, but that would help me to kind of figure out what I wanted to say. And it was getting out and about being out in the open air, walking around Golden Gate Park or whatever, not being at my desk, being like, I've got to get this done, really helped with getting those essays done in a lot of ways. I don't think I could have done it. And I've been actually doing that with my newsletter, too. Some of my newsletter articles are basically composed by me just like mumbling into my phone. <laughs> 
out on the out on the street while people probably look at me funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had to reach really deep in a lot of cases. Like I had to, there were things where I was like, well, I have this vague idea about how this thing works. And I had to really kind of keep, I don't know, questioning my own assumptions and kind of really trying to get deeper into what I really thought about my writing process and other people's writing processes that I know. And, you know, not just give like facile advice, but try to give advice that like, if someone's really struggling, the last thing you want to tell them is like, oh, just do this. Oh, this will, yeah, here's a quick fix. It's more like, okay, we're struggling. You know, let's, let's just admit that this is hard and we're going to, here's some things to ways to kind of think about it that are different that you might not have thought about it. And, you know, in some ways, I don't think I was offering advice as much as I was offering just starting places for people to kind of think about stuff on their own. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a marvelous sense of community in this book. I think somewhat because of the fact that you're drawing on writer friends and it's been really fun to see to the, the social media prompts that Tor has been doing. Oh Yeah. And you sort of mentioned this in your, what is, as we're recording this, your most recent newsletter, issue number 38, for those of you who keep track at home. There's a moment where you're, towards the end, you're kind of talking about this idea of writing advice overlapping with self-help and therapy. And there's, I don't think I've ever quite read a, a writing advice book that feels like I can give it to somebody who's not a writer. I guess I'm wondering how much you were thinking about that as you were going. There's there's this sense of, here's how we all survive together. Maybe you're a writer or a creator and you will find the, the sort of tactical nitty gritty helpful, but also like here are some words of encouragement. And I, I found that I needed both and I was surprised at how much I needed both. Thank you so much. That that really means a lot to me to hear. I mean, uh, I definitely wanted this book to be for, you know, anybody who might find it helpful, including people who maybe don't write science fiction or just write other genres, people who are writing, you know, fan fiction, people who are writing for themselves and never intend to show it to anybody else. One thing that's sometimes a little alienating about writing manuals or writing advice books is this assumption that you are going to want to have a professional career as a writer and that, you know, and that means that you need to person up. I don't want to say man up, but adult human up. <laughs> Definitely there are times in the book where I kind of try to talk about like how even if you're doing creative nonfiction, this can be helpful. But really also, even if you're just like daydreaming and making up stories in your own head, I feel like the world is made out of narratives and like politics is constructed out of narratives. Our relationship to, you know, each other is all made out of stories we tell ourselves. And so finding ways to think about storytelling is, is I think, therapeutic for anybody, for sure. And I, I mean, I do think that, you know, good writing advice is at least to some extent a little bit therapeutic and a little bit self-helpy in terms of like, you know, just making people feel okay about what they're doing. You came up with this initial talk years ago, years before you started writing these essays. And then as you were working on these essays, you were also starting to think about putting together this book. How were you able to help yourself keep going and keep it feeling fresh? I'm going to be honest, it was a it was a challenge. And like, there were times when I was like, okay, wow, you know, I, I really want this to be something that I can be really proud of at the end. And I want it to be something that's not just kind of that doesn't just kind of descend into like dull, rote, nitty gritty stuff that like people have heard a million times before or that, you know, I feel like as a writer in general, I'm always motivated by a combination of fear and desire, I guess, or fear and ambition. Like on the one hand, it's, you know, if I feel like I'm blowing it or if I feel like I'm blowing a deadline or if I feel like I'm just like, oh my God, I'm I'm really late with this thing or I'm not doing a good job. I get very worried. And so that's the thing that motivates me. That's kind of a negative motivation, but also like the feeling of, I think this could be something really cool. Once the essays were going up online, the responses I was getting every week really helped. Like, I feel like there were pretty much usually commenters who had like you know, who were very happy to get the essays, but also had really interesting thoughts and responses to them. And it was, you know, that was part of what I was hoping for is that it wouldn't just be like me throwing stuff out into the void and then never hearing anything back. But I felt like instead it was actually, it was, it was good that, you know, people actually were engaging with the essays and kind of thinking about them and, you know, clearly finding them a good kind of starting point for their own explorations. But, you know, mostly it was just like, I felt like I had committed to doing this thing. And I just, you know, again, part of the fun of it for me was like really kind of thinking more deeply about some stuff I had thought about before, but kind of questioning my own assumptions and trying to like get 
a, a deeper perspective or a more kind of interesting perspective on some of these things that I had already kind of formed opinions about in the past, but now I could really kind of try to go a little bit further. And that was, it was a license to really kind of, you know, which I feel like for someone who's been writing for a while, like if you've written a few books and you're kind of a, a somewhat more seasoned writer, a little bit like a mid-career author or whatever, and uh, you, you, it's easy to sort of think that you know what works and just kind of get into a little bit of a rut. And part of how you avoid that is to keep kind of questioning your own assumptions. So in some ways, this was good for me just because it made me really rethink a lot of my thought, my ideas about stuff and my opinions. Well, so that then leads me to ask how writing this book has changed your, or if it has changed the rest of your practice. I think it has like here and there. I think that there are just like, I think a little bit more carefully, like there are definitely times, there have always been times as a a giver of writing advice that I've given advice that I don't always follow myself, you know? And I think that's, that's pretty normal. It's like, you know, you want to, when you're giving advice, you want to be like, well, here's the, the, here's the really ideal way to do it, you know? And then in your own writing, you're like, well, okay, I could do it that way, but I really, this is the way that seems easier or that I'm kind of feeling more drawn to right now or whatever. But I feel like, yeah, it's a lot of the, there, there's definitely some advice in the book that again, not like, just like I was giving myself kind of encouragement and reassurance. I was also definitely giving myself some advice that I was kind of going to hopefully take for myself. That was like, maybe think about world building a little bit more carefully. Maybe there are some aspects of how you depict, you know, your supporting characters that you could do better. And I can't think of specific things right now, but I feel like there's just like lots of little things where I'm like, I maybe take an extra beat and just kind of think about stuff because I forced myself to think about it more for this book. Well, I imagine that that, I imagine it must be strange to be doing any kind of look back at your own work. But as as you're putting together this story collection that's coming out at the end of the year, your first big story collection, I mean, one, what is that like? But also two, do you see how you've changed and does that feel good, bad, weird? I would say good and weird. <laughs> I'd say it feels good and it feels a little weird. I did doing the short story collection definitely kind of made me go back and kind of look over like my career as a short story writer, which, you know, goes back like 20 years and realize, you know, how many stories I wrote before I felt like I really got a grip on it. And, you know, I mean, back in like, I want to say 2005, 2006, I sort of first thought about like if I could do a proper full length story collection and I wrote like a list of stories that I would want to include in that story collection that I had written at that point. I think maybe one of those is in this book. (laughs) It's clear that at least I don't know if I I don't know if I should say that I've leveled up. I feel like I'm happier with the stories I've written in the past 10 years than in the stories that I had written previously. And like you can definitely see where my practice of short story writing kind of improved or sharpened or, you know, and I talk about this a little bit, never say you can't survive, mm-hmm. actually. The the earliest stories that are included in even greater mistakes, like Power Couple, which I think I wrote in 2006, especially the first half of the story, I just completely re, I tore it apart and just started over again, I guess. There are a couple other stories where I did a pretty heavy handed rewrite wow. just to kind of bring it up to what I thought was like the standard of my more recent stuff. Here's the thing. I used to be a kind of a funny, silly writer who never really got very deep into like the emotional state or the kind of relationships of my characters. That was kind of like my thing for a long time. I wrote a lot of very funny stories in which the characters are kind of ciphers. They're kind of just like there to kind of keep the story moving forward and to kind of support the jokes. And, you know, at at a certain point, I think... Really, in a lot of ways, the the turning point for me was was that story, Six Months, Three Days, the Mm -hmm. one that kind of put me on the map in general. That was like the story where I really felt like, okay, this is a story where I'm getting kind of more of a handle on how to write, you know, complicated emotions and complicated relationships and people who are having a thorny relationship, but they still really care about each other. And like, it's, that's hard to write. And I, I felt like that story, like, you know, I definitely could see some flaws in it now that I look back, but I feel like it's a story that works on a lot more levels than everything I'd written before that. And that was, I think, 2011, I want to say. So that was kind of a turning point for me, like, so roughly 10 years ago. And, you know, and then it's really been in the last five years that I felt like I've kind of been able to deliver like a story with that level of emotional kind of punch, like on a somewhat regular basis. In everything of yours that I've read, there is this 
joyful, even when it's serious, like I'm going to write these stories and I'm going to throw elements of whatever I want in there. And the, the rules quote unquote can go fuck themselves. (laughs) I, I really, I enjoyed seeing that in victories greater than death. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so interesting. Like when I wrote all the birds of the sky, which feels like a long time ago now, that was me very consciously being like, okay, I'm going to mash up science fiction and fantasy and see if I can get away with it. And it was like, you know, and I, really expected to be kind of struck down. I expected lightning to hit me or whatever, you know, and I certainly didn't think the book would be embraced the way it was. It was, I was like, oh yeah, people are going to hate this, but I still want to do it because I think it's really fun. And then, you know, obviously there are people who hate that book. Like there are people who hate any book. And, um, you know, and then it just sort of started to hit me that like, we live in an era where, you know, outside of a few quarters of the book world, nobody is taking these genre distinctions seriously anymore. Like, you know, everything that's popular is just like, we, let's see what we can throw in. And like superheroes are an obvious example. Adventure Time was a thing I used to point to. Summer Camp Island is just like, oh, there's aliens and witches and werewolves and blah, blah, blah. And like, I feel like most pop culture nowadays doesn't really kind of think uh, that there's a meaningful distinction between like witches and werewolves on the one side and aliens and you know robots on the other it's just like oh yeah they're all and you know if you think about it the function of these things and this is something that was actually made it harder in some ways to write all the birds in the sky because i was trying to in some way preserve that distinction in order to kind of probe it or think about it the you know a, a werewolf or a witch or a fairy or whatever serves more or less the same purpose in a story as like an alien or a robot there's something that's not entirely a part of our real present day world that intrudes on our or that we go in somewhere to find or that's part of some other world and they're a marker of like otherness or strangeness functionally you know are vulcans elves they kind of are they're kind of elves i mean they're space elves right you know at a certain point i made a big point of starting to describe victories greater than death and its sequels as like space fantasy and i think The second book, I'm not going to really go spoilery, but the second book kind of leans a little bit more into the fantasy stuff. There's like more kind of epic quests, more kind of gods, ancient gods and ancient demons. And like, it just has a little bit more of a fantasy feel to it because I was just like really enjoying doing that. And also, you know, to some extent, there's a reason why people think of YA as being skewed more towards fantasy than science fiction, because I think that there are certain fantasy elements that lend themselves to one teenager can can save the world or whatever, which can still happen in sci-fi as well. It happens in Divergent, it happens in Hunger Games, but, you know, epic quests and like prophecies and like magical items that are, you know, perhaps specific to one person or something. You can see why those kind of go with you know, YA to some extent, and some of the space opera tropes do kind of lend themselves more to, it's a giant team of people, some of whom are like seasoned professionals, you know, dealing with a, with an issue. And so I kind of leaned into the fantasy stuff even more in the second book. I feel like what I realized as I was doing that is that space opera has a lot of epic fantasy running through it. And I think that, you know, it was actually really fun to lean into that and also really fun to kind of one of my fears with the YA trilogy was that, you know, there would be a subset of space opera people who'd be like, well, you don't, you know, explain the orbital mechanics enough, or there's not enough, you know, there's not enough, like, this thing happens, and we kind of get an explanation, but it's not really, it's very hand wavy or whatever. And I, I feel like part of my defense against that is to kind of lean into the fantasy elements and be like, well, you know, it's okay if some of this stuff is a little bit magic, just a little bit, you know? So my last question for you is, kind of a serious one and it it certainly ties in specifically to the theme of never say you can't survive i found as i was reading it there are days that i and i I know i can't be alone in this there are days that i have trouble finding hope and finding joy and finding the the brightness that drives me to write stories that drives me to read stories and i I kept turning back to your book, which is inspirational, but it's also unsparing at times in sort of being like, yeah, shit can be hard. And I guess as as somebody who I really look up to, you know, I kind of selfishly want to take this moment to both to thank you for it, but also to ask you what you do when when you find it hard. Yeah, I mean, you know it's a variety of things. And like, you know, there are a bunch of different coping. I kind of, there is one chapter in the book where I talk about like when, you know, 
how do you rediscover the joy of writing or whatever? And like, you know, some of the coping mechanisms that I've used forever, like taking a really long walk, getting fresh air, kind of talking it out, going and talking to the bison in Goldgate Park <laughs> about my what I'm working on, playing with my cat, who is currently very mad that I haven't played with him in a while. <laughs> you know, just kind of getting out of my own head is really important. Part of it definitely is, like you said, just accepting that this might be hard sometimes and that, you know, it's there's going to be bad writing days and bad writing weeks or months sometimes, and you're going to be struggling and that the struggle is part of the process. And like, I think a key turning point for me was when I stopped thinking of a writing, a productive writing day is when I produce X number of words and started thinking of it in terms, instead in terms of, did I have some productive thoughts about this thing I'm working on? Or did I kind of like reconnect to it, this thing I'm working on in a way that felt really helpful? But also sometimes you just got to cheat on whatever you're writing and just write something else for fun or, you know, goof off with your friends or play a game or something. And, you know, trust that the writing will be there when you come back to it. Um, I think that, yeah, it's just a, a huge part of it is just not being, I used to be really hard on myself. I used to have this like kind of Puritan work ethic of like, you know, I am going to be, so I'm going to be this productive. I'm going to be this, you know, and I, that leads to burnout. That definitely leads to burnout. And I think that, you know, so just not being quite so hard on myself and not being quite so kind of, you know, mean to myself, I guess. And just acknowledging that, yeah, you know, um, I'm going to do what I can. I might only write like 200 words today or 100 words today, but hopefully there will be some good stuff in there. a big tea drinker. I find it relaxing. I find the ritual very important. It's how I start my day almost every day. And if it's not with tea, it's with coffee. And there's rituals involved in that too. I've been thinking a lot about the tiny rituals that ground us in our day, the moments that we have to pause, that we have to wait. And I've been thinking about it a lot in particular ever since reading A Psalm for the Wild Built. Becky Chambers' new solar punk science fantasy novella. Becky Chambers is an author of science fiction and fantasy. Her long-running Wayfarers series just wrapped up with the final book, The Galaxy and the Ground Within. And I was so delighted to get to talk to her about this new book where a monk and a robot become unlikely friends and go on a road trip, and they talk about philosophy, and they drink tea, and they think about nature, there's a lot in this book. And that was the first thing that I asked Becky about. I always like in writing books in general to making dinner out of all the leftovers I have in the fridge. And that is extremely true for this book. Like, I can't say that there was one, you know, sort of light bulb idea that spawned this. I, you know, really the, the the only sort of coherent genesis I can say of it is, it is I was interested in writing something solar punk. I was like, this is a, a genre and a scene that is really interesting to me. I want to do something within this. I'd like to take a break from space opera for a bit. I'd like to, you know, get my feet wet in a different pool. And within that, just all the pieces of it were there, you know everything from my lifelong love of robots to a real interest in green technology and in rewilding and all that sort of stuff um an overarching question of how do you actually write a utopian story you know like because mm -hmm. that is like i mean that's an enormous question we could talk for an hour about but <laughs> you know like how do how do you tell a story within a world where everything works and all sorts of other just little bits and pieces aesthetics that i like and just like something like i'm like oh that's a neat idea or i'm gonna use a little bit of that so it, it's it's a big old hodgepodge of of stuff that i love and I'm interested in. What was it like to write a utopia? There were so many moments where I could hear your narratorial voice as well as the voices of the characters. I really liked the way that the, the narration of the book is acknowledging how different it is from the world that the reader is living in. And so how did you do that? How, how did you write something that's so, God, so nice? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it hit that note. I mean, I, I did put a lot of thought into 
how, how this actually works because it's very easy to just say, oh, they live in a ecologically sustainable future. Well, how? What does that actually mean? What does that look like? You know, because the technology within the setting is not the point of the story. But for me, it was really important to be as clear as possible to myself ahead of time of, okay, what sort of tech do they have? How does this all work? So that I could be very casual in describing the sorts of things that Sibling Dex, the protagonist, has their hands on throughout the book. Um, and so, you know, there were a few things that went into it. I decided um, very early on that I wanted to make sure that the the tech and the solutions used by different communities within the setting were not the same because I think that's a that's a common trap to fall into when you're talking about not just utopia within fiction but when we're talking about you know sort of uh, environmental solutions proposed ideas as to how we might you know address climate change how we might you know rework our cities all of this there tends to be this very one-size-fits-all mentality of we should all do this we should all do you know whatever this might be and the thing is you know I, I don't think in any aspect of society, a one size fits all approach works. You, you're dealing with not just different environments and microclimates, but access to different resources. You're dealing with different cultural values. So that was, that was important to me to show that utopia is not monolithic and is not, you know, something where everybody lives their life exactly the same way. There's a lot of diversity and difference within this space. I also wanted to make sure that it that it it felt um, humane, you know, for lack of a better word, it, that that there was a that everybody had a sense of purpose and place, you know, that there there people aren't stuck in useless jobs because they have to be. People aren't aren't struggling to survive. People aren't you know having to choose between rent and healthcare or what have you. You know, like all of these these systemic problems that we are very familiar with are absent here. This is a this is a society that values not just human life, but animal life and plant life and prioritizes that above everything else. So all of the small decisions I made, you know, in terms of what sort of tech they have, what their homes look like, all of that, those were the big sort of umbrella concepts that that everything else fell under. That word humane feels like a really good one to describe the feeling of this book. And I'm thinking particularly about our main protagonist, Sibling Dex. They're a tea monk. And the whole idea of a tea monk, it made me so happy and it made me long for that. I suppose it would be for anybody who hasn't read the book yet to have you describe it, but then to talk about sort of where that came from. So Sibling Dex uh, is a monk and, and they belong to a religion that has six gods. The god that they are devoted to is the god of small comforts. And it's, I think, important to note that within this pantheon and within this faith, there are no big miracles. There aren't miracles at all. There's no like sort of big divine intervention or anything. Uh, it's very much a, a religious system based around the idea of you have to help yourself and you have to help others. The gods are sort of there to inspire and guide, but they're not people and they're not really involved in day to day. So you're not going to get deus ex machina solutions to things. What you're going to get are are the little everyday sorts of assistance that, that you know, really is how the world works. The God of Small Comforts, we, I think we would probably describe it as, as a hedonistic sort of God, but that concept really doesn't exist within this society. Their whole realm is one of, of the good things in life, a sunny day, a comfortable bed, a hug from a friend, you know, like these little tiny things that don't solve problems, but give you the strength to be able to tackle them. And so within that, there is this tradition of tea service in which a monk will, you know, there are like dedicated tea rooms, but Sibling Dex is a, is a traveling monk who has a, a wagon that they take from village to village and they set up like a, a you know, a traveling shrine sort of sort of situation. And what happens is anybody who wants to will go to the monk and often talk about their problems, but they don't have to actually have anything wrong. They just have to describe what they're, you know, what's going on with them, why it is that they need to rest that day. And that can be for very ordinary reasons, or it can be something big going on. But they're, you know, they, they have this moment of vulnerability where they, they tell the monk, here's what's up with me right now. And the monk listens 
and then makes a cup of tea specifically to suit those needs. You know, if you're really stressed out, it's going to be something really calming. If it's, you could, you know, use a little bit of a boost in your day, but need to take a minute for that, you know, it's going to be something a little livelier, you know, and they sit and they blend it for you. And this is the cup of tea that's going to like give you what you need right now. And it's not a magic potion and it's not a cure-all. It's just, here's a little something to help you get through the day. In that, you know, I wanted... I wanted to to underline that thing I said earlier of, you know, this idea of small comforts, of the little stuff is what gives you the strength to tackle the big things. And so tea seemed like a really perfect fit because, you know, a cup of tea is in a lot of ways nothing. You know, it's just a drink. It's just something you have on your desk. And yet... A cup of tea can make the whole difference in your afternoon. You know, I, I love to drink tea when I work and it is really different than just grabbing a glass of water or whatever, you know, it's comforting, it's soothing, it's you're taking just five minutes to do something nice for yourself. And so that to me felt very emblematic of the whole idea of this God and of this particular branch of this religion that I was trying to communicate. I was going to ask if you are a tea drinker and I, it doesn't surprise me that you are, but I, yeah, I feel the same way. Like the ritual of it, deciding what tea you're going to make, boiling the water, steeping the water. Like there is something very grounding about it that even, even in the most hectic of moments, it's like, well, I can't rush this. Yeah. I have to do these steps, you know? Exactly. And you have to, and you can't really rush drinking it either. I think that's an important <laughs> thing too, unless you let it go cold, which, you know, I have, I've done many a time in my life, but it is something where you have, you have to let it sit to steep and you, you have to drink it slowly. It's, it's a, it's a drink that inherently forces you to slow down just a little bit, you know, in, in a very, in a very subtle sort of way, which again was, was the vibe I was going for. What kind of tea drinker are you? So um, I think I'm, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that I'm the only author in the world who doesn't operate on caffeine. I don't like caffeine. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I drink herbal tea um, or decaf if I can find a good one. But um, I drink a lot of, I've gotten really into loose leaf teas, actually not until after I wrote, wrote this book, which is funny. I was always a big tea drinker, but I, I didn't really get into that side of it until I finished the book and my wife gave me a very nice teapot and like a loose leaf tea subscription as a congrats on finishing the book present. And since then, um, yeah, no, I've gotten really, really into it. <laughs> So um, I, I would say like, you know, my, my go-to everyday tea, you know, if, I, if I'm just in a hurry, would be peppermint. Uh, I also like ginger, just any sort of weird herbal stuff. I like a cup of chamomile before bed or chicory tea is really nice. It kind of scratches the coffee itch. I was struck by the way that you also felt like a tea monk to me. The world just feels hard and harder than it has. And I don't, I cannot think of another book that so felt like a cup of tea. It felt like you were inviting me to take a load off for a little while while still having to contemplate kind of all of the big things that were going on. And I, I'm wondering what that, what that role feels like for you as author to, to both have created this thing, but then to be putting it out and to know that it is it, like that it's helping people. I would say, I mean, that's incredibly humbling to, to hear, um, you know, from yourself and, and from readers as well. It is, uh, what, what can I say about that? It's a, it's a massive privilege, I feel. And it's something I, that, that really means a lot. And it's something that, that I, I, I do take really seriously. One, one of the things that I thought a lot about when, when going into this book was sort of the way that I'd noticed not only my own media consumption habits changed, but my friends as well over the past, let's say five years or so, in which we are living in, 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 age of just a tremendous amount of talent and like incredible stories out there, you know, be it books or especially TV. TV was the big one that sort of like made me notice a few things in that like TV has never been better. There, there are just so many incredible shows out there. And this sounds like a tangent, but I promise it it's relevant. But I, I noticed there reached this point where what me and my friends were watching a lot of was kid stuff, either kid stuff or like cooking shows or shows that we grew up with that we already knew and that felt safe and were 
you know, comfort food. And we would all sort of talk about like, oh yeah, that new thing that came out, I've heard it's really good. I should put it on my list. And then we turned around and watch, you know, Steven Universe or The Great British Bake Off again. And I really started thinking about this, sort of thinking about the feeling I would have when I'd sit down on the couch and be like, okay, what am I going to watch tonight? And I'd look at all these amazing shows that I knew I'd be really into. And I just felt tired. And I just felt like I I don't feel like I have the emotional bandwidth for, you know, the, the latest like critically acclaimed thriller or whatever. I just want a cartoon. But I'm also 36 years old. And not to say that adults can't enjoy kids stuff or fluffy shows. Absolutely, we can. But there was a part of me that was really hungry for media and stories that spoke to who I am now, where I am in my life right now, but that didn't feel emotionally taxing. Not that I wanted fluff, but I I didn't want to to have to steal myself going into a story or, or to have it sap me even more than the real world already was. And so part of the intent with um, Song for the Wild Bill was I was like, I, I want to tell a story that scratches that itch, that gives that feeling of I'm going to just, you know, sit down and watch something comforting, but in a way that A, speaks to adults. This is a book for adults. And B, gives you something to think about. You know, there's some, there's some nutrition. <laughs> there's something, you know, there, it's not going to just sugarcoat. It's not just going to be something, you know, super light and fluffy that you forget about. You know, ideally it's something that makes you think and reflect and, you know, gives you um, a bit of fuel in that regard. I wanted people to be able to to read this book, to have it be an effortless experience, but at the same time to come away feeling a little more filled up than when you first sat down to read it. That TV problem in particular deeply, deeply resonates with me, where I just have my cue continues to grow. And I'm like, well... Uh, I've been enjoying watching The Nanny, yeah. you know, and pretending <laughs> that it's the 90s again. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a connected question that I have to what we've just been talking about. But before we get to that, I feel like it's important to talk about Mosscap and your robots. I really, structurally, I really loved a thing that this novella does where it, we're introduced to Dex and we sort of experience their story and see the ways in which they are fulfilled and then still kind of hungry for things. And then a robot walks out of the woods. The relationship, this is like tangentially a world building question, I guess. The relationship that humanity has to robots and the relationship that robots have to humanity was really fascinating to me. And I would just love to hear more about it. So there were uh, a lot of different ingredients that, that went into the robots. And for, for those listening who haven't heard, I'll give it just a quick a quick summary of, of robot history within within this setting. Um, so the, the way the story goes is that um, the, and this is no, not a spoiler, this is just the setup for the book, is uh, that a couple centuries ago, the, the factory robots of the world uh, gained sentience en masse. And to this day, nobody knows how. They just all woke up. And uh, humanity, to its credit, said, you know, we didn't mean to create like self-aware life. So let's put the brakes on everything for a second and figure out what to do. And, uh, you know, they offered uh, robots an equal place in their society. They said, you know, you can come join us. We can rebuild the world together. We can, you know, you, you can be part of things here. And the robots said no. Um, politely, but no thank you. Um, you know, they they were curious about the world outside of human constructs and human design. And so they wandered off into the wilderness and have not been seen since. They've been, you know, everybody knows that they're real, but they've become almost sort of an urban legend at this point. Like nobody's seen them, nobody's heard from them. You know, humanity gave their word to to let them be. And they've just been out there observing nature and figuring the world out. And uh, Part of the intent with that was that I, I wanted to, throughout the book, play with ideas and concepts that are often posed as opposites in fiction. So in this case, nature and technology are often seen as opposing forces or incompatible forces. You know, there's something that, that they're, they're, they're diametrically against each other. And I, I firmly don't believe that like I, I really do think that we can have a high technology society 
that works harmoniously with nature. And so the robots living out there and being in in many ways more connected to the natural world than humans are that it just it just seemed a natural fit to to underline that idea and you know in in other ways as well you know i didn't want them to be this is just true for me in general with all of my work i don't like to rehash old ideas about robots as much as possible you know i didn't want them to be these very you know logical emotionless automatons because uh, first of all we've done that and second of all i i don't think that that would necessarily be the case that too is this false conflict between logic and emotion, this idea that emotion somehow taints logics or corrupts logic. You know, so often we have robots who begin to develop emotions and lose their minds or, you know, become unstable or, you know, they can't handle it. And it's just like, well, that doesn't make any sense because we're, <laughs> we can we can handle both. So why, why couldn't a robot? Like we were talking about earlier, the, the comfort that this book brought to me and the way that it made me lay my burdens down for a second, the way that it it also made me think differently about the world around me. Do you, you've, you've written a book that is, is very hopeful and do you have hope slash like if you, if you do, what are the things that, that give you hope? It's a great question. I do have hope. Um, it's not always easy to hold on to. And some days it feels very hard won. But I think that that's the importance of telling hopeful stories in the here and now. There are a lot of reasons, and I don't need to outline what they are. We all know there are a lot of reasons to be afraid of the future right now or to feel dissatisfied with the present or angry about the present. I feel those things every day. And the world makes it difficult to believe in something better. And so for me, hope is an act of defiance. And it's something I do very intentionally. It's something uh, I I try to hold on to, even if I feel like uh, everything else is telling me otherwise, you know, that part of me is just stubborn and just digs my heels in and says, no, there has to be something better, because I refuse to accept anything else. Because for me, accepting of course, there's the possibility that there might not be. I'm not trying to be, you know, unrealistic about it. But I think to give up on the idea that there could be means giving up altogether. That That is just, that's nihilism that's that's being stagnant. That, I mean, for me personally, that would mean that I, I am no longer moving forward. There's no point to anything, right? So for me, hope is something that doesn't come naturally, that isn't um, like an inherent part of who I am. It's something I choose. It's something I choose every day. And it's hard and I don't always want to. <laughs> but but the alternative for me is uh, just unacceptable. That's why I write the things that I do, because I think it's really important to have stories out there that do paint pictures of a hopeful future, that do present the possibility, you know, not in a prescriptive way. I don't think that any of my stories are, this is how, you know, this is what we should do, or this is how the world actually could be, because, that you know, it's impossible <laughs> with the stuff I write. But um, I, I want I want to give readers the taste of, of what it feels like to, to look forward to something that's ahead. And as far as what fuels that within myself, how, yeah, um, honestly, it's, it's, it's people that I meet just in my day-to-day -day life or people that I encounter through reading this stuff, people I meet at conventions, people I encounter at bookstores or whatnot. I am constantly humbled and grateful by the, the sorts of things that people share with me within those context. I, I guess, I don't know, I, I suppose it's because I, I write very personal stories. People often feel like they can tell me very personal things. And and through that, through the, those acts of sharing and and of uh, really radical vulnerability and, and of, of telling me a story in return, you know, I just see the absolute best in people. I see the bravery in people and, and the kindness. And, and that's what gives me the strength to to keep going and um and to keep believing in something better because despite despite what the world at large may say i look at the individuals within it and i think uh we have the capability to to um you know really make beautiful things if we put our mind to it
I'm not going to leave you with a third guest today. Instead, I thought that we could all pull up a chair together and I would share something with you, a little piece of text that has been deeply meaningful to me for much of my life, something that I have turned to in hard times, in dark times, a reminder of my own power, of the beauty of the world. It comes from Albert Camus' essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. I conclude that all is well, says Oedipus, and that remark is sacred. It echoes in the wild and limited universe of man. It teaches that all is not, has not been exhausted. It drives out of this world a god who had come into it with dissatisfaction and a preference for futile sufferings, and it makes of fate a human matter, which must be settled among men. All Sisyphus's silent joy is contained therein. His fate belongs to him. His rock is his thing. Likewise, the absurd man, when contemplating his torment, silences all the idols, and in a universe suddenly restored to its silence, the myriad wandering little voices of the earth rise up. Unconscious, secret calls, invitations from all the faces, they are the necessary reverse and price of victory. There is no sun without shadow, and it is essential to know the night. The absurd man says yes, and his effort will henceforth be unceasing. If there is a personal fate, there is no higher destiny, or at least there is but one which he concludes is inevitable. For the rest, he knows himself to be the master of his days. At that subtle moment when man glances backward over his life, Sisyphus returning towards his rock, in that slight pivoting he contemplates that series of unrelated actions which becomes his fate, created by him, combined under his memory's eye, and soon sealed by his death. Thus, Convinced of the wholly human origin of all that is human, a blind man eager to see who knows that the night has no end, he is still on the go. The rock is still rolling. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again, but Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe, henceforth without a master, seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain, in itself forms a world. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. I hope that there's a little something in that that might be resonant with you. I hope that wherever you are, in these hard and trying times, that you know that there is light and joy and goodness, sometimes in a walk around the block, sometimes in a cup of tea, oftentimes in a good book. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn, Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>